So what should we discuss? I just read an article, um, well, something I went to, a tricycle article by Ajahn Jeff, tennis role, and uh, it was about Sambhaga and Pasada. So um, Sambhaga is usually translated as disenchantment you know, of the world, and often even in uh, monk's life, there's disenchantment, meaninglessness. And so we talked about Pasada and just to find that as confidence in the path, and but he didn't elaborate on Pasada. Pasada's peace, isn't it? So was my question. You know, You'd have to get the palm here. I couldn't find a dictionary in the language. Oh, we got. We got. Uh, we got no more. So, but what would your question be on a Pali word or? Yes, right. How are you? Uh, I, I wouldn't like to comment because I don't know what he was saying about right, it. Right, yeah. yeah. Sangwega. Okay, so I can say... Uh, uh, Maybe if you formulate... Own, yeah, you, you formulate the question for me better. Okay, yeah. I have lots of disenchantment with uh, regular worldly activities. Right. And, uh, I was a monk briefly, but I've been around monks and monasticism uh, for a long time. And uh, last year when I was a monk, it seemed to accentuate the meaninglessness of monk's life too. Um, and I compared that to um, helping my brother with schizophrenia. Yeah. And that seemed very meaningful. Right. And uh, but now my brother seems to be in a very good place and doesn't actually need me very well. He's much better than he's been in thirty, forty years. Right. And uh, so I got two uh, categories, three categories of kind of meaninglessness today. And uh, I wonder about the what's the use of it on the path. Well, being, yeah, the path in general, because uh, um, I just see more. Why do you meditate? Well, I try to uh, see things clearly, okay. and um, generally I see things um, too clear. I think maybe it's very unpleasant. Um, the teacher I was with in. Sri Lanka said, you know, there's four noble truths, and so we started with the first truth, dukkha. And so we did a lot of very unpleasant practices, like I'm vomiting, and it's very extreme. A lot of suffering, physical, mental suffering. And what kind of character are you? My personality? Yeah. No, I don't know, I guess it's complicated, like most people, like they're... Um, you know, so big broad categories like Loba. Did you ever wear bright shirts? Uh, it's rare, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more dark uh, <laughs> colors. There's a clue. But not always black. I think that's one of the questions. Yeah. Did you? Before you. People call me. Did you ever buy a Mustang? I had a Mustang, 66. What? Why is it because it was old? I like cars a lot. Oh, you like cars a lot. Yeah. Right. See where okay. I'd have a bright yellow 32 Ford Coupe would be my... Uh, that would be your thing. Fantasy car. Right. And then 
as Americans repeated. Is your mind <laughs> like I believe in your rebirth and, and errors yeah. too or not, but uh, some of my experiences uh, are you are you highly self critical? Yes. And that was one of the issues uh, when I was a monk because uh, it aggravated the self-criticism, the sense of failure, and also became more and more critical of monks that I'd known for many, many years as a lay person. And I wasn't critical of them as a lay person, but as a... So, your tendency is towards dosa? Yes, I guess so. But, yeah, so I used to have a lot of temper. Okay. Explode and break things. So... Put my finger, fist through the door or something. Very nice. <laughs> I'll be careful. Played hockey, you know. We fought quite a bit in hockey. Oh, good, good, good. So that's good. Yeah. Life is an exuberant, overjoying, bright shirt has never been your no, problem. No, that's right. Okay. But you do like girls quite a bit. Yeah. Know, so. Okay. But but your tendency then is towards dosa. Yeah. So is what you're perceiving as Sangvega, isn't it, maybe it's just dosa. Yeah, it could be. More uh, angry. More angry. So, is, is your critical function, what's, what's the point of Sangvega? The point of Sangvega, or disenchantment, it's so that you incline your mind to the unconditioned. It's not a rejection of beauty, nor, nor is it a, an affirmation of beauty. It's just saying that um, beauty and ugliness are a pair. There's nothing wrong with beauty. There's nothing wrong with ugliness. So I was in Toronto and I was visiting my father's gravesite, very beautiful gravesite, and there was a dead raccoon which smelt like crazy. That's, to me, unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Right? But then I saw some magnificent oak trees which, to me, were very pleasant. So that's just the way my mind perceived that situation. A vulture might find the raccoon <laughs> smell really nice. <laughs> so that that's just the nature of the way my sense senses are, are perceiving this. The the realization of the Buddha is not a sense experience. It's not through the senses his realization. So he's saying that sense experience, including experience through the mind, is limited. It's not all ugly. It's not all bad. It's not all to be rejected. It's just limited. And the movement away from it is an interest in something else, not, a, not just a rejection. If it was just a rejection of the five khandhas, then I think that would be inclining towards dosa because there'd be no, no place you're moving to. But in Buddhism, you are moving to the unconditioned. Now, so that's the question you need to ask yourself. Why do you meditate? That's why I asked you. Are you inclining towards the unconditioned, or are you just meditating in order to blot out consciousness so nothing hassles you? Yeah, trying to do suffering. Yeah. So, are you meditating just for sense deprivation, or are you interested in the Buddha's enlightenment? Now, the Buddha's enlightenment wasn't about sense deprivation because he tried that; that didn't work. It was about realizing the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unborn, peace, nibbana, and so on. And he said, you cannot find that in the conditioned, hence Sangvega. That's all. 
So I think what, no yeah, so what I think you have to look at is a tendency to create thought around the way things are, and that thought is it invested in dark shirts? <laughs> right? If you get what I mean, is it is it like a tone of mind which interprets life, and then you start to fit Buddhist terminology to make it wholesome? You fit dosa into sanvega, so it sounds like you're doing something wholesome. I don't know. And that's dangerous. You think, oh, no, I understand that word. But actually, you're, you're employing that word to justify kilesa, or to rationalize kilesa. So what you want to look at is, you know, this is the way it is now, and what's your mind commenting on it? So if, uh, if you find... Let's say one day I dribble my porridge <laughs> all over my shirt, right? And I'm just sitting there giving you a really talking to about being sloppy. Okay? And you look at me and you see me being angry at you. Plus I'm sloppy. Plus I'm eating with a full mouth. And you see that and you start to think, 45 years of meditation, this is what it does to you. <laughs> it's hopeless. That's attachment. That's not Sanvega. That's attachment to the way things are with dosa. And you're actually not practicing Sanvega. You're engaged with the khandhas, with aversion. So you're not free from the khandhas. So aversion actually sticks you to the khandhas. It attaches you to it in a way of thought. Whereas Sanvega says, not if it's really worth it. And you go to silence. So Sanvega should take you to silence, not to critical thought. Makes sense? To me, I mean, that's what makes sense to me. So the Dukkalakana characteristic, that's what it's pointing to. The characteristic of unsatisfactory is not saying that sweet is sour or that the smell of a raccoon is 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 the same as the smell of a rose. They're different, right? But both of them are simply conditions which arise and cease. So in that, you start to experience mudita. Now, do you ever experience mudita? I think so. Yeah? yeah. So how would you say, what's mudita? Well, sympathetic joy. Uh-huh. I had a lot to do with uh, children and school teachers. Okay. School and, uh, you know, they, they do well on tests or the artwork and things like that. They're really full of joy. Right. And, you know, so can you make that more more strong in yourself? Yeah, I suppose. Because that would practice. be the balance yeah. to to what I per- I don't know. I, mean, I might be wrong. I'm judging. I'm not judging you, but I'm perceiving maybe mm-hmm. that your take on the world is a bit top heavy with dosa. Mm-hmm. But if you bring in mudita and and not. Because mudita can apply to natural forms, it can apply to art, it can apply to people. It's it's that uplift quality, I think, of the mind. And I think that, what that does, it takes you away from thinking, like awe. You know, like the sense of awe that we have as human beings. When you see... Um, yeah, in, in natural form or art form or whatever, even a piece of music, it takes you to awe. And silence, then you're not. You're you're actually 
allowing, like let's say, go back to the children for you, the relationship to the children lifts your mind, mm-hmm. right, into a good good state, right? It's yeah. not it's right. not self-absorbed, it's not critical, and yet that was a sense experience. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah, the kids were super happy, and they did well on their exam. Yeah, and and you and you have the joy of that, yeah. and and. They show me, like, and you're not self-referencing. Mm-hmm. You're not in there. That's got nothing to do with me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Your mind is free from self-referencing, mm-hmm. and and that was through a sense experience. Mm-hmm. So if 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 one were to think that all sense experience is useless, you couldn't even watch the breath. Mm-hmm. Well, that's happened. Curtis made the hand of bread. That's happened. Yeah, yeah. So it, if you if you see if you see that that is not you know it's it's. It's a skillful way of uplifting the mind, not not a kind of drunken way, say, you know, intoxicated or besotted with life. And so the mudita is a very, very, I think, important part of the Brahma Viharas. And an upeka. Right? So you're, you, you, you have a lot of compassion. You, from my, what I know, you serve, you take care of your brother, you took care of your dad. Mm-hmm. So metta karuna are strong in you. Then, but there's also mudita and upeka, uh, the kind of uplift you get, and upeka is, oh, this is the way it is now. Mm-hmm. And then the critical mind won't allow upeka to function because it'll, it'll go its kind of downward way. Now, another person who might wear a bright yeah. shirt. Upeka hmm? goes down? It, no, oh, oh, uh, dosa would take you down into mm-hmm. a, uh, aversion or depression. Um, because dosa would take you there. It wouldn't allow opeka to just be... But another person who might be besotted with life, you know, a guy that's got married six times and, and wears bright shirts or whatever, you know, the recommendation to him would be different. Say, so have you ever contemplated death? You know, uh, you know, is it really worth what you're doing? Is distracted and you're going to go hard? You'd talk in a different way to that right. person, right? Because they're... Their imbalance would maybe towards something else. Huh? I'm just speculating. I don't yeah, know. You, you have to reflect on it. Yeah. Yeah, I think too much about death. Yeah, like that's the 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 first yeah, the first this. contemplations the Buddha gave. All those monks are doing thirty-two parts, mm-hmm. marana sati, death, and all. That. They're killing themselves. Yeah, he he changed down to one sati. He's pushing the sati. So it's not there's no absolute in this. It's it's having the intelligence to see what what are the balancing factors I need for non-grasping, and what is what is the mode of my grasping? How do I how do I get caught in sense experience? It's not a rejection of sense experience because rejection would still be being caught up with it, wouldn't it? In some kind of a critical, judgmental, depressed way, because it is as it is. You know, if you if you read Long Poliums. Yeah, the, the biographer, he says in, in his realization, he says, and people were just people. They were exactly the way they were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very profound. Yeah. That's what I have a hard time accepting. Even with my brother's schizophrenia, I'm trying to micromanage and mm-hmm. fix him and things like that. And so I recognize that. And you know, lately I've been like, you know, keep my mouth shut. And he actually has noticed that. Uh, okay. Um, more comfortable with yeah. that. Yes. And how does how does micromanagement fit 
So you have metta and karuna, kindness and compassion, goodwill. So where's the imbalance with, with that that makes you want to micromanage? What would you say is the imbalance? Is, are you afraid that he'll get worse? Or well, there's damage control. Damage, yeah. So you have to do something. Have to do, something. do a lot. A lot of times they don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just break furniture or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it's just the experience of having dealt with him that you have to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. But uh, recently I told you that story about um, my brother being here and he recognized Peter as a German Mennonite. And those sort of things happen quite often with my brother. Yeah. Sort of just dismiss it or whatever. You know, I just accept that's what it is, you know. But other people took great joy and interest in that. Uh-huh. And so now I've been talking to him more about that. And he actually um, likes it that I'm interested. That you're responding to that part of him. Because you know, I'm valuing some of his yeah. worldview and ideas and experiences and things. Because you've had to respond to his illness so much, right? It's wild. Yeah, I can. Oh, I mean, hats off to you, that's it. Yeah. Anyway. Look so at your dictionary. You know, notice that when it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Notice when someone makes a banana cake yeah. and offers it. Yeah, and it's not just greed. <laughs> you know, it's kind of gratitude and, and, and this kind of uplift. Gratitude is a very uplifting quality. And those, those carry your meditation. So then beauty can be used. So my, my take on beauty is that when we see a beautiful object we don't want to own it, that's idolatry. But when I see a beautiful object and it points to my own silence, it stops the mind, then it's a symbol. So how does it point to your own silence? That it's so good my mind stops. Okay, you just wow, like that awe you said. Uh, Jaw dropping. Like art sometimes. Or, you, you know, like a mountain or... Something that just stops your mind. When we, we built that monastery in New Zealand, I, I told the architect, I want a jaw dropper. Yeah. <laughs> that was my criteria. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. You get the award for it. Yeah, so, so realize there's all those... The Buddha did recommend some very uplifting qualities. Gratitude is a really good one, yeah. Because once the critical mind gets, and you can find, you know, I can pick these guys apart, no problem. You know, I, I could spend all day finding <laughs> what's wrong with them. But it wouldn't be, and I'm, you know, I'd be right to some extent, but it'd be a pretty heavy way to live. So then, like, how, how do you use the critical faculty in a way which is, according to wisdom, because you, you have a critical faculty, and yet not be the slave mm-hmm. to the critical faculty, which is dosa. I went to high school in Deep River. There were about a thousand students in our high school at that time. And uh, just last summer, I was together with a friend I went to high school with. And within a few minutes, we named off 30, maybe 40 people we know that are dead. Really? I didn't know all thousand people. Yeah, I so guess I, I, I have a lot of dead friends, too. Yeah. Huh. So what's a good way of looking at it instead of a dosa and aversion and you know, I'm sorry? A good way of seeing that without it being too heavy. Yeah. Know, the, uh, 
just to know that these guys had pretty good lives for 30 years. Deep River is a nice place. Almost all guys, a couple of them. <laughs> so, what else? I was going to ask you, in, in relation to David's question, mm-hmm. what do you feel uh, to you is the association between, um, what am I trying to say, right view and strong faith in the Buddha? Because yeah, you said you had some friends that yeah, were Buddhists before and they turned to I have a father who used to be a Buddhist and turned away from Buddhism and became an atheist. So I guess that's where my reflection comes from. Well. But how strongly should your faith be attached, not attached, but associated with the view? With the person or with the view? The view. There's right view and there's righteous view. Right. Yeah, there's that. You could say right understanding has many levels. And let's say you, you have some sense of some moral conscience and you know that if you embezzle money from the university or something you're going to be mentally going to suffer plus you might get busted mm. so you have a certain amount of right understanding mm. because you know the consequence of that kind of activity so right right views is really about right understanding rather than right intellectual position mm. okay so then you can see that there are things that you understand now that you didn't understand as a 13-year-old. You've grown and you've matured. And the things which you kind of see happening now, you don't quite understand, which you'll understand more deeply when you're 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, there's the kind of natural maturing that we all have as human beings into the nature of where well-being lies, and where it doesn't lie. And part of that's just to have a personal experiment we're making, mm-hmm. different kinds of things. And that's all part of right understanding too. Right? So there's the, <clears throat> the natural progression of a deepening understanding of both your own, your own character, your nature, and your society, and the natural world, and how you can live in that in a way which is both fulfilling and harmonious. That's the experiment of, of being a human being. So that, that aspect is in, in the Noble Eightfold Path is about right action, right speech, and right livelihood. Mm-hmm. So uh, right speech is the understanding that if I, if, I, if I were to lie to David, then I would be, let's say, if I were to lie to him, then tomorrow I'd be afraid that he'd find out that I lied I see the consequences. I see my ego and trying to manipulate it and say, not a good thing to do. I'd stop lying, let's say. So that's understanding, isn't it? I'm coming from understanding that this, this way of speaking, harshly or lying, is, doesn't give a good result. So that gives me right speech, coming from right understanding. Uh, right action. I see that if I, uh, if I get angry and punch my fist through the wallboard, I have a hole in my wallboard, plus I have knuckles which are kind of swollen. And I see following my anger, like road rage, following road rage and yelling and doing things is not a good action. 
and I calm down, I see myself going that way, right action, which is around morality, not killing, not stealing, not being promiscuous, not lying, and not taking drugs which damage consciousness. So those are the five precepts. And that comes from understanding. That doesn't just come from fear. It's not like fear-based. You just know, if, if I do this, this is the consequence. It's going to be horrible. I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> uh, and then right livelihood is something which everyone <coughs> is trying to get right. How can I live in this world with the least amount of harm, still put food on the table, pay for my mortgage, and hopefully have some kind of uh, fulfillment in my work? Right, livelihood. And that comes from understanding. So that, that I doubt if your dad's rejected that. No. You know that would still be a part of a part of his understanding. So then there is um, right concentration, or, or say right meditation, in the noble eightfold path. And and meditation is the capacity, shall we say, simply to calm the mind, to settle the mind down. And no amount of belief in Buddhism needs to, you know. Whether the Buddha existed or not, it doesn't really matter. There is something very understandably profitable about being in the calm of the mind. So, you can see right concentration doesn't need a kind of Buddhist belief. Right? So, so, your dad might still meditate, I don't know. Maybe he's chucked it out. Or maybe he has a way of calming himself. But I think you don't, don't need any of that. So then you get things around Buddhism which are a bit more difficult, like rebirth. Right? And those those require faith, because unless you're a psychic, I'm not a psychic, so I have no experiences of past or future births. But perhaps more importantly than those kind of doctrinal things is the Buddhist realization. And the Buddhist realization was what we'd say a transcendent realization, in, not in the sense that he floated to the clouds, but he realized something in consciousness which was not contingent on his experiences which wasn't dependent on experiences so we say it was unconditioned or deep peace or whatever and then the way that manifested in his life was deep compassion and deep equanimity the way he lived his life now so that realization which we call enlightenment that requires some kind of faith Uh, sometimes that faith comes from your own experiences sometimes just you have a uh, individuals have experiences which are so different, so profoundly peaceful, so different, where the ego falls away and so on, that it's significant. You have to pursue it. Your whole being has to pursue to understand this. Or, if you come from a, a more a Buddhist cultural background, then enlightenment makes a lot of sense culturally, and then rebirth makes a lot of sense culturally. So then that project... You know, the project of enlightenment is one which requires um, good thinking. You've got to, you've got to see well, what what did what? How is the Buddha teaching, and how is he suggesting we move towards this experience or to this enlightenment? And that's where you get the kind of dialogue I was just talking about the the non grasping of sense experience. And that makes sense in terms of the Buddha's realization of the unconditioned. So that takes some getting your head around. Now, if you get that bit wrong, if you get that bit wrong, and you think that the Buddha is saying something like, it's all bad, it's all disgusting, it's horrible, get rid of it, 
and then you willfully try to meditate or force yourself into some altered state of mind or you reject life in a way which is full of aversion rather than looking for something more peaceful that rejection could make you reject Buddhism you know you could say well Buddhism is, is not, I don't believe it anymore or one might get caught up with a bunch of people who are, are have their own view and are practicing and the, the senior teacher might be quite repressive so the manifestation then of the senior teacher is, is uh, autocratic, dictatorial, um, and everyone is saying, yes, you know, yes sir, yes sir, and, and you're watching Buddhism isn't for me. So there's all kinds of reasons one might move away from that. But I don't think, if you, if you look at understanding as natural opening to wisdom, then it's not a position you take. It's not like, I believe in Buddhism as opposed to Christianity, or as opposed to Judaism, but I, 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 I practice this because it makes sense so far. It works. Mm-hmm. It fits my own experiments in life. Some bits I don't understand seem a bit abstract. So, around the things which, like let's say rebirth, one of the strategies many Westerners have is just to um, try it as a working hypothesis. You know, what if there were rebirth? What would that imply about my conscious experience now? wouldn't answer all the questions. Would it be a way of approaching it? But if I demanded that you believe in Buddhism and you believed in rebirth and I was adamant that you must believe in that or you were not a good Buddhist, then you could very well say, get off my back. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't need that kind of stuff. So, and then it depends on which Buddhism you pick up. So you have, you have our school, you have Tibetan Buddhism, you have Nichiren, which is like off the map, weird, strange, sorry. <laughs> it, it's, it's a Japanese form of, of, I don't call it Buddhism, a, a radical Japanese monk started it in the 15th century, and it's, it's very, very odd. My often. dad probably knows it actually, because he, he just so happens to live in Japan. Oh, maybe, yeah, so maybe he picked up some format like that. Oh, this is actually, this is like 20 years ago. 20 years ago. What she wanted to inquire, you know, which school of Buddhism was he disenchanted with? Because that makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. And then slip in one of our books. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that, you know, because Buddhism is such a historically broad range of teachings that that... You know, the Venerable Tanisiro, he he's co-authored a book that they use in university called Buddhist Religions, plural. Because mm-hmm. they are so different that you have to look at them as different religions. Mm-hmm. So even even the kind of catchword Buddhism is, is not, can, you know, cannot really cover what, the way this philosophy has evolved in, in different avenues. <clears throat> Does that help? Yeah. yeah. yeah? So it's about, if you use right understanding rather than right view, sometimes that's more helpful. You know, because understanding is not a position that comes from intellect, it comes from experience. Yeah, ask your dad, so what kind of Buddhism are you doing? 
Does he belong to the Hindus? No, or something. Is there any particular group or he just no. doesn't? He's more of an agnostic than he did. Was he a diplomat or? Uh, not particularly. He's, a, he's humanistic. He's but what, what, was he a diplomat in Japan or? No. No, he was just working. Just working. Yeah, ask him. Get an interesting dialogue on. I've got a question for the answer. Fire away, sir. <coughs> so, um, you talked about noticing the end of thought. You know, but I, I guess I apply it to when hindrances come up, you know, whether it's aversion or desire. And I, I, <coughs> I notice kind of a lack of mindfulness. But, um, you know, because I can, I can notice the beginning pretty easily, sometimes the end, and sometimes it's kind of forced. Ah, yeah, stop. And then I I notice the mood of the mind that produces the the thoughts. And one of the things that I've been kind of practicing without a timer to, and just kind of bearing with things until they dissipate. And so, you know, I... I end up spending a lot more than an hour meditating. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I, I end up thinking, you know, this is, this is hopeless because in Toronto I don't have a couple of hours in the morning and evening. And, but then the other thing that I realize is that like when I first wake up in the morning, I'm in a really negative mind state, mm-hmm. right? And I just kind of wallow in it for 10 or 20 minutes thinking that it's a way of kind of waking up until meditating, but I wonder whether you have any tips or things that you do when you wake up and you've got a load of things to do during the day, and so there's various, I don't know, when various hindrances are there right in the morning before you really need to wake up, any, any thoughts on that? Cold shower? <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, yeah. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, go to, I try to go to the heart. I go away from thought to the heart. What's the heart doing? That's my. That's what I do first thing when I wake up. But I, I'm heart, aware of the mood. And when the heart feels like it's in a dark place. I stay, I stay there. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I'm in choir. It's good. Because I know that the dream state has produced this mood. And the dream state's been produced by pressures in the previous days, right? Um, so, like the other night, what was it? Someone wrote me, who knew my mom quite well, a nice little piece, and in it she also mentioned something that my mom was critical about in my character, which is true. <laughs> mom knew me, but. The, that, that critical piece, which was, a, it was just in an email, came out in my dream. That's my mom. <laughs> in the dream. And it was quite unpleasant. And I woke up with that. And it was just so clear 
And I could see, okay, that produced the little boy getting his finger. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I just, just, I just stayed with it and I brought it back to love. Right? So just, you know, we're, <laughs> we're so ridiculously sensitive. It's absurd, really. That back to what, sorry? To love. To love. Yeah, to my heart, yeah. Because I love my mom, right? So you could, you know, because those are just old conditionings that come, you know, there's nothing right or wrong. So it's having some kind of a um, skill that you just go to intuitively, instinctively, and you just do it a lot. Like I just made a sound of silence. You just do it a lot. But going back to your reflection on meditating for a long time, what's the result of that? Uh, positive. Yeah. Is the result one of, of, of lingering peace for longer periods of time afterwards when you're walking around? So I would suggest that's quite good, but it takes a lot of patience and takes a lot of time. But there's something about patiently witnessing change rather than trying to... Force it into one hour. Exactly, yeah. Or or get the mind in a place where you want it to be because you you got it. That's what I know. It's impatience is the problem. Yeah, absolutely. (coughs) Because at the start, you know, I uh, meditate an hour every morning in Toronto, and it... And I realized it's almost like a schedule. My gosh, I got a process this stuff <laughs> in the next 60 minutes or else. So uh, what you might su- suggest to yourself when you start the 60 minutes is just, just patience rather than getting there. Just you put that word in because quite often patience will take you to peace more quickly than, than force. But you don't, you don't have the patience to do that. <laughs> You see what I mean? Yeah. So it's uh, and you know, Advaita Vedanta, uh, all the traditions talk about this. You know, getting to the getting to the the center of the, the moment, and then just allowing that moment to unravel itself rather than the willfulness. Yeah. <laughs> Dana, any more? Uh, <clears throat> patience. Yeah, you get a chance. If you have more time here, you know, you can go, it's okay, I'll just still just be here. And then watch the, this, this, this trying to get something, and trying to get, and that's, the, that's, you know, when, when you stop, when you stop proliferating, when you stop creating the storylines, what you, you what you notice is is more underlying like primal like sometimes I'll just have like feelings of of dread and there's nothing wrong you know everything is really good in my life I'm fairly healthy good friends I mean fabulous life but there's just feeling of dread will come up there's there's no, nothing I can pin it on and what's that it's just some kind of karma coming through now if I misidentify that and I think and I say well the dread is because I can find lots of things which are dreadful I, I like the metaphor of an itch and I can feel myself wanting to scratch like yeah creating a storyline or some kind of thought yeah. some kind of thing to shift that mood of the mind or and, and what you have to do that's where the patience is yeah like like the other day I just had this incredible dread going through me not incredible it wasn't that bad but it was very strong 
And I just kept going to my stomach. Mm-hmm. Right? And all this kind of attention until it all released and I was just yawning. These huge yawns. Big, big yawns. Around nothing. You know, there was absolutely nothing triggering it. And that was so interesting. It was just pure karma. Yeah. But unpleasant. So if I had not, you know, if I went to a... St- I would have invented a storyline in order to... To not feel it, I guess. I guess that's what would be happening. Well, I've heard you talk about it. I think you're absolutely spot on that uh, sometimes the storyline or thought is a way of distracting one. Yeah, because it's so unpleasant. Yeah. It's yeah. so unpleasant. Yeah, it's weird, yeah. yeah. But then the result is very good because now the, the mind has released that and, and the body's released it too. You know, the bodily karma is also... And the, and the propensity for that, the kind of karmic tendency towards that direction, has fallen away to some extent. And there, and that's patience again. Patience in knowing knowing it as an object rather than becoming a subject. But in a busy world, you have so many dreadful things coming at you. You know, there's real justification for worrying all the time. And then that compounds the problem. If you're, you know, especially if you're that type of type of person. So what's love? So bring it back to love. What do you mean by love? Oh, it's a feeling here. When the kids are happy, go here. See what it feels like. It's a softness. It's a it's a kind of gentleness. It's a it's a welcoming. It's a, it's not sentimental. Sentimental, sentimentality is in thought. Oh, aren't, aren't the aren't the chipmunks cute? That's <laughs> that's sentimentality. Or aren't isn't the aren't the deer really cute? And then yeah, but they've got ticks. <laughs> but but compassion or or or, or love or uh, goodwill is something. It's more like what you feel when the kid gives you the little drawing and got an A on it and, and you ah. Oh, down here <clears throat> and once and it's again it's like we often need narratives to trigger these things off like I, I, I t- I'd say to people well, do some gratitude practice gratitude for what to whom it doesn't matter you know and gratitude can come up without an object just as dread can come up without an object so love can be there without an object you don't need to love someone it's a natural condition but we often only notice it when it's triggered by a condition. And then we mis- make the mistake that, oh, that thing is what love is about. And we try to own it or whatever. And it gets all messy. But if you see that love is a natural uh, abiding, and you see that it's, it, has a, it has a, seems to have a physical lodging in the center of the chest, and you begin to intuit that, then you can go there more and more. Just like you can go to Anapanasati. And then when you have negative emotions, such as fear and anger, you can also go there as a way of processing it. And here, and in the guts. So your, your, pros- your resolution of these kind of difficult karmas that we have is resolved through the body rather than trying to analyze it away or getting caught in the thoughts that are driven by those things. Is there a planting the seed process? Like, um, you know, do, do you kind of 
um, have gratitude for your mom or somehow kind of uh, have an image of your mom and that that that, that helps yeah and then that it depends on how developed you how sensitive you are there so then sometimes just one suggestion of gratitude opens the heart and you just abide there but sometimes when it's not been that developed you have to keep reinvigorating it through imagery uh, through people so those practices I say of the heart you know breathing in Ajahn Sumedho breathing out may you be well Ajahn Sumedho may you be well that that's like stimulating a muscle making you know you're strengthening something which is is gotten maybe atrophied or ignored through life's pressures or you know other the mind's gone to other places. So, this, so the strengths of the mind have become actually weaknesses. Aversion, criticism, judgment, fear, distraction. And all those uh, prevent, they kind of layer over the heart, and prevent the heart from being known. And then as you, as you start to not go to those directions, you begin to feel the heart more. And then, and then it's just a really natural kind of abiding place. Very, very pleasant pleasant place to be and then that combines with effort in, in meditation where the effort is one of uh, like, a, like a welcoming rather than a forcing uh, a receptive kind of gentleness rather than a I'm gonna get something out of this so the, the effort is much easier it's just much more fun to do yeah, yeah. You notice that all the descriptions of, of, of samadhi practice are about happiness. They're not about unhappiness. They're about letting you know states of happiness. So, when the heart's in it, it's easier. You know, David, I used to rub tiger balm here. Because <laughs> I was so dead. Yeah, at least I got something going. <laughs> My gratitude for my father, which I often think about. Uh-huh. Every, not every sit, but often. Grateful for teachers and the Buddhist teachings. Great. Like that, uh-huh. and my parents and my dad. And then the storyline goes a little bit into my dad. And then I, you know, he died. And mm. it brings up a lot of sadness. So that aversion again, that sadness. It's a storyline. And the storylines have associative right. so just, just moves. Stop, it. stop the story, yeah. Because yeah. that's the way the mind works. Memories have emotional uh, components to them. Mm-hmm. So if you remember a betrayal, you'll have a betrayal feeling. Mm-hmm. If you, so just the 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 person is a trigger for the gratitude. Then you let go of the person. Mm-hmm. It's not about narrative. It's about the heart. Yeah. So it's it's you know, your dad's a, a kind of extraneous, but he's he's your main entry into that. Mm-hmm. And then you let go. Mm-hmm. You were talking about that last Saturday in terms of right effort. You know, preventing unwholesome. Mind states, encouraging wholesome mind states, and you know, having enough mindfulness and concentration to be able to not follow that storyline. Yeah, that's a big one. I, I definitely. That's a huge one. Do that kind of attach a storyline. Yeah, once you understand the thinking mind and you have more bodily awareness, you can use imagery to bring forth the wholesome, and you can see imagery trying to pull you to the unwholesome, and you don't go there. Mm-hmm. So you, you can you employ you know all your all your all your equipment as it were in a good way rather than being a kind of a slave to it.
May I ask you a question about um, meditation? Um, along the same lines of uh, Curtis's question, I find that um, I'm a beginner in meditation, and I really I struggle with starting to find concentration. I suppose it's just a matter of continually sustaining effort to try and enter into forming that practice. Um, do you have any tips for beginners? What uh, what kind of meditation have you been trying? Just breathing. Breathing, yeah. And I'm just trying to calm, calm the mind and focus on breath and not thought. You're an artist. When you do art, you focus on doing. On doing. Okay. And what's the result of focusing on doing afterwards? You're calm. You're calm. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> is there a skill there which is transferable to the breath? I suppose I have a problem with sitting still. Okay. And with not, with not applying some kind of concentration on an object. Okay. Physically. So f- physically the challenge is just being still Something and having like nothing to kind of yeah. engage your... Like the hindrance of, um, the hindrance of drowsiness. Okay. For instance, gets you a lot. Gets you a lot, okay. Uh, even when you've had rest. A little bit. Yeah. So... I mean, I suppose one of the ways to start would be to not maybe attempt an hour every time, or maybe to attempt 15 minutes, and then attempt half hour, and then attempt more. Well, also, to consider, is the object of meditation really something that suits you? Mm. If the object of meditation is producing dullness, then you have to somehow use that object differently, Mm. or have another object of meditation. Right? So if you want to use the breath, then you should learn to, when you feel sleepy, move to pranayama, which is some yogic breathing. Oh, yeah, look it up. Yeah, look it up. Uh, you'll find some, do ujjani pranayama, which is a simple pranayama exercise of breathing. And you, you do a, a vigorous, deliberate breathing for a while. Mm. And that, what you'll find, that if, if you start to get sleepy, you'll, you'll, you'll lose the deliberateness. So then you'll have a tool which within a half an hour of meditation you can turn to a more obvious tool rather than just the breath becoming more and more subtle. And you can pick it up when you want, put it down when you want. So that's a good thing. Play around with the breath. You know, make it more vigorous and stronger and deeper and more physical. Um, So then you're using, you're not too passive with the object of meditation. So that would be helpful. <clears throat> and then then you might I'm, I mean I can't I'm not an artist and I can't draw so but is there would it would it be possible for you to visualize something and hold a visual image in your mind to calm yourself oh or would that not work I find that that's antithetical to my to my aim with meditation actually because it I would I find it more simple Okay, and that would make it more complicated. It would, yeah. It would create content. If you, if you, if you imagined a yellow ball, yeah, that's true. And, and could hold that, would that calm you? I don't know because I can't it's visualize. Like an experiment, actually. Yeah. Because so you take what what we have, we have a type of meditation called kasina meditation, and what they recommend is you take a 
say a green disc or a yellow disc or a blue disc, whatever color, and you paint it on the wall, not on this wall, <laughs> <laughs> and you visualize it and then you get the after image. Yeah. Visualize it and hold the after image, then you don't need the wall anymore. And you hold that image in your mind, try to hold it still, make it a bit smaller, a bit... So you exercise uh, attention on something simple, visually, but you have to stay quite focused. So that's the kind of meditation that's recommended for people who have those kinds of abilities. Ajahn Sumedho did, they're called nimittas. Nimitta is like, a, uh, like an image that you hold in your mind. So he, he developed a green nimitta and his concentration was quite good. And he, so he, he began with just a, uh, a, a green disc. If I have, I might have it wrong. But then he made it light, like, like a light, green light, and made it bigger and smaller. And he used that as a way of calming the mind. So that might engage your gifts already that you have around that. But if, if it got too complicated, then... And then, so in terms of sleepiness, how you deal with that, well, one, you, you also can take another posture. So you, you walk back and forth across the room, yeah. which is quite calming. It's, it hasn't got the refinement in the beginning of sitting meditation, but once you get a sort of aptitude to it, um, you begin to like just walking back and forth. Well, sitting meditation is a good place to start. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then, then you have to learn about the hindrances that are coming up. Yeah. Okay? So you have hindrances, say dullness and restlessness. Those are a pair that come. So you have to program in your mind the intention to observe the arising of this hindrance mm -hmm. and then to see what happens to your body with the hindrance of dullness. So you use your posture as your meditation object rather than just the breath. Mm -hmm. So you, you, know, you set yourself up and let's say you try the breath and it's just not working. Well, then you give up the breath get back into a posture, maybe keep your eyes open, and then kind of make the intention to yourself, I'm going to try to notice what happens to my head as I'm meditating. Because that will be the first thing that will tend to drop. Your head will go like that. So then your body becomes the object of meditation rather than just the breath, which is more coarse. And what you want to begin to notice is that. Yeah. That movement. And you... You know, you, you can sometimes bob through it like for 10 minutes, you know, and no, and you bring your energy up. So then you start to figure out how you can bring energy into your spine. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the ways you do that is you learn how to push down on your lower spine into the cushion, mm -hmm. and you learn how to pull the top of your head up to the ceiling. So you get a sense of, you can, what I do is I start. I start with some deep breathing and I really get it deep, really get in there rather than being subtle. And so a long breath in, long breath out, long breath in, long breath out. And then on the out breath, I go up. Okay? Breath out and then up. And I just imagine a hook pulling me up and I just do that for maybe 10 breaths. Long breath out, going up on the out breath. 
and just keep pulling, pulling, pulling. And then you you feel your spine pop, and you feel your shoulders opening up, and then the other way down, the other way. So then long breath out, and then the the base of the spine into the cushion, into the ground like a tree, roots of a tree, and actually push down, push my cosmic right down like that, and quite quite extreme. Yeah? If I'm if I'm sleepy and I I know it's not just I need to go have a rest. So I did this much more when I was dealing with that. So then you do maybe five or ten of those, then both ways, right? You do both ways. So it's like yoga stretches. So at the end of it, you know, you've done maybe ten minutes of vigorous yoga, but on the cushion. And now, now you're, you're, you have more vitality in your whole system. Now you let go of that, come back to a normal breath, and then see if you can see the arising of dullness. Now, dullness won't necessarily be gone, but now your your system has more power in it, as it were. And as the dullness comes up, you have more chance of noticing it as an object and the thoughts associated with it. And as you notice it as an object, you get very careful whenever it comes up. You, you keep lifting your spine, and then it goes away, and then you don't have to put so much effort for it. So it's, it's an important one to learn about because... You, most old-time meditators, new-time meditators can can suffer from that a lot. And the danger is that people who become chronic in that think they're meditating. And and you know you see that with with us monks, you know, you kind of your monk is just like he's on his forearms and and he's just doing it all the time. They go, oh, oh, he's gotten in, into a bad habit. Hmm? Yeah, it's, if, if it's anything, it's that and delusion. A version to the dullness? Pushing, pushing away thoughts. Okay. Instead of sitting with them. Alright. Trying to say to go away, yeah. Bit, yeah. And trying to like forcefully focus on the breath. Maybe trying to motivate. So that's a good insight. Yeah. You know, you you've seen something now in your trying that doesn't quite work. Yeah. So one way of working with that is to think the thought deliberately for half a sentence. Yeah. That's quite good. So you, so you, you know, you're, pl- okay. So you're planning some, yeah. So use that because at the end of that half thought, you're quite mindful and you stop, yeah. not through rejection or aversion. So you've got some good insights around that. It does, you know, it works out just by doing it a lot. Yeah, exactly. You know, I must be like drawing. You just draw a lot and you learn a lot, or carpentry or anything. But I think a, a disciplined amount of time is very helpful. That's that's uh, you know like to to put in the time is to, is is very valuable. We, that's that's why like here we have morning evening meditation. Monks are meditating on their own. It's it's quite important to do the time. Yeah. So I wouldn't if you can do an hour, I wouldn't give it up. Yeah. You know I think it's profitable, um, but not not just forced. You know something you're interested in, in, in interested in doing. The hindrances are anything that prevents you from staying present in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know? And you, you're always looking at that. It might be fantasizing, it might be dullness, it might be aversion or whatever. That's why, like what Curtis was saying, it's, for me it's important to notice the end of thought mm-hmm. rather than trying to get rid of thought. There's a difference. Each time, you, if, like if, you, if you're planning something for tomorrow, you're meditating, you're planning something for tomorrow and you wake up, let's say the, a car honks, 
next door, honk, and you notice you've been thinking, in that moment, notice that's the end of thought. Rather than think, oh God, I'm thinking too much. Because that aversion will make you more restless. But notice, oh, thoughts stop now. I'm present again. And then begin from there. And that's, that's very, very helpful. Very important. Yeah, I suppose in the beginning, it's just a matter of patience. Of beginning again. Again and again, yeah. Until it's sustained itself longer and longer. Exactly, yeah. Think of anything you've learned how to do. You know, when you when you began, it was always like that. It was so clumsy or whatever. So it's, it's a kind of learning curve. And once you get over it, you kind of enjoy it. No? Curtis? No? Don't enjoy it? <laughs> I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Two-sided. Um, let's say you get to the place um, where the mind is observing and doesn't really feel anything sees, okay, like, this is why this happened, this is why that happened, um, doesn't really feel any way in regard to it, um, you see who you are kind of, like, slowly just disappearing, and, um, It feels like if you totally disappear, you just go with the flow kind of thing. Um, and then one thing, so you see kind of why things are the way they are. And it's just, you just witness, I guess, but it's very neutral. Um, and then one thing will happen. Don't I don't even think, maybe if you're very, very concentrated, you can see... Um, the uptake again and you're back in the story like you're back to living it instead of just um, yeah why did it ever start living it in the first place why is there that re-uptake is that what your question yeah, like why was there why was there even the living in in the first place? Like why just not that part where? Um, so I'll put it, I'll, I'll turn like put in the the thing of the chitta. So this part it seems like there's nothing but the, like observing, and observing is just a scene. Like it's just. Like, People smile, and you realize why they smile, and you realize why you used to smile. Like it's like a dispassion, I guess. Like you see things, and like you, and you're free to be like happy and good in a more pure way. Like you can act on that in a non-attached way. You have no real want to do the other one. Um, and then something will happen. Like again, and in that you can feel yourself slowly fading away, like less of you there. And then, and it feel, the, what comes up in that is that, okay, if that just fades off completely, then there's just, that's the end. I can't really speak from the after of that. But 
and then one thing will happen, and it will just, you went from seeing everything to, to being in it again. Why was there, why did the chitta ever take up this, this, this new birth? Yeah, being in this in the first place. The uptake. Yeah. Or even get into it. Like I'm feeling like there, there's two two like separate ones. The one from when you just you're just like flowing out, meaning meaning um, you're just fading out of the whole thing. And then there's the more distinct where you like you come back into the whole. Like there's there's. I'm making my making. Yeah. So two sides, I guess. Why did? Or just one side, I guess. Why, why is like why did the chip ever get this whole thing going in the first place? Because it's so inherently not like it's just I don't know. I just don't understand why the chip got into taking this all up. Well, I guess the best answer would be from the way dependent origination works. So that that formula explains you know it's, it says there is there are the senses salayatana and they are part of the equipment that we have and that they imply contact right pasa mm-hmm. and then from the pasa you get vedana which is the affect attractive or unattractive or neutral and then from the Vedana, you sometimes you get Tanha. And then from Tanha, you get attachment. And attachment is I making, my making. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's the formula we're given. And that so sometimes the, the awareness is very clear. And Vedana is just Vedana. Nothing. And then... Some, something comes in where Vedana becomes pleasant enough or unpleasant enough that there is craving and the craving is so strong and so fast you know, fast really is the, the proper watchword that there's the uptake which is Upadana I making, my making and the story starts to evolve and it has so much uh, it's so quick and so karmically uh, has got karmic potential say what we call the uh, anusaya you know this word anusaya latent tendencies so latent tendencies are, are like possibilities which haven't been triggered because the conditions are it's like when you when you when you when you have uh, sense deprivation the latent tendencies don't get triggered and all of a sudden you go into a more complex thing they get triggered so those are kind of there and, and the challenge of the meditator is to have such mindfulness that the, the, the pleasant goes to craving but there's no grasping. So in my example of dread here, right? So having worked with fear a lot now, before I would have just dreaded whatever story my, want, my mind wanted to create but now it was just pure dread. There was no, so it was just, it was just Vedana, and even there wasn't much Tanha in it. It was very unpleasant, but there wasn't a desire to get rid of it. And because there was no desire to get rid of it, there wasn't the whole 
I making my making around it. I've got a problem or something's going to happen. So it was pure Vedana, emotional, physical, visceral dread. Mm. And then it ran its course. But before, like 20 years ago, I couldn't do that. It would have been so confusing Mm -hmm. that my mind would have quickly jumped into some kind of narrative around that. That answers it 100%. Yeah? It's just, I guess I find it difficult that it, um, <coughs> it's such a smooth transition. Like it's almost, Fast. Yeah. And that's, that's where you work. If you, if you talk about dependent origination, that's where I was working. That's where you break the cycle. And that, the formulation of that, of dependent origination, is avijja pachaya sankara. With ignorance as condition, there are these uh, sankharas, which are the kind of complex things of life. And when ignorance, when ignorance is not there, then there is not old age, sickness and death, and birth and suffering. And that, you break, it, you, you break the cycle of ignorance at Vedana, Vedana Tanha Upadana. It fe- feels so subtle, like even like even now, like when you said that to me, like I'm back in the story, and, I, and something about that I didn't like, and I looked out the window, and I was wise enough to be like something. I don't even I can't even say what it was about that I didn't like, because I'm not even at that subtle level, I'm not even aware of it. Yeah. And I knew that I, that's the reason why I looked out the window. Yeah, you go away from it. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess <clears throat> it's just so hard to uproot all of this. Like it's. That's why you don't get many Buddhas. <laughs> <laughs> also, so the Buddha, when, that story of the, you know, of four heavenly messengers. That was at 33. He spent what six or seven years of asceticism. So he didn't figure it out. This amazing being took until he was 40. Yeah, and 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 the mistakes he made. The ascetic, you know, he yeah. really really hurt himself something fiercely. Speaking of uprooting feelings and desires and hindrances, about your explanation of your own dread, do you have any tips for dealing with fear in the mind? Well, I think, because you don't want fear. You want you want clarity, right? The kind of fear that leads to anxiety, that leads to delusion. All of that, exactly. So if you can be conscious that it's coming into you know into being now before you've taken it into all kinds of stories, yeah. then that's a good thing because you're more conscious now. Another person might just be running with a fear and leave it totally and you can't even talk with them, right? So now you're aware of fear more as an object rather than being the subject of it. But yet it's still there. And right. I, I find eradicating it is difficult. It's the, the, kind, it's the kind of fear you describe that just is there. Right. So your, your task is not to eradicate it. The task in Buddhism is to try to see what is the desire there. Mm. And the desire is not to have it. So... The experience, and this is the, the idea of Vedana, of the experience, is unpleasant. Take, take, take a physical example. You can be sitting, and after 10 minutes, your leg might hurt, but you've got enough presence to know, oh, I'm okay with that, and you don't react to the pain. 
But maybe after 20 minutes, you start to react, you start to think, oh, I've got to get out of here, and, and so on. So at some point around that unpleasantness of the pain, you were, you were mindful of it. But at some point, so maybe... And that's the same with an emotion. An emotion is highly much more unpleasant than some pain in your leg, right? But it's still just unpleasant. Now, when, where is the desire there? And the desire is to get rid of it. And that's what you try to look at, is the desire to get rid of, rather than the fear itself. Right. Okay? Yeah. If you start to identify the desire to get rid of, then you see the logic of welcoming fear. Then you get into the narrative about it, I suppose, after that. If, if you don't... Yeah, that's where the narrative would come from, trying to get rid of it. But if you notice the desire to get rid of it, and you say, well, what's the antidote to the desire to get rid of it? It's welcoming it. And you, and you start to... If you're safe, you know, if, if, if there's a bear coming, then that's not... <laughs> but if you're safe, you, you, you welcome it and say, what is fear really like now? And you start to try to see it as an object. And, and where, you, where you see it as an object is viscerally. In your stomach, especially here. So you start to equate fear with a visceral experience in the stomach of tension, tightness, and so on. And you get very, very good at identifying fear as a physical reality and not running with the story. Mm. You get really good at that. That's you, you, know, you, you get really experienced at that. And then as the fear comes up, then you resolve it in the body. How much fear you have kind of... You know, fear is a very powerful emotion. A lot of people don't even notice it because they're just caught up in their... whatever personality they have. As meditators, we become conscious of it. So then what happens is you, you now are able to process the fear that's natural, according to your conditioning, and you don't add to it with thinking. And then its, it's force on you begins to die away. So the, the imagery you have is of, of a fire with fuel, and the fuel of fear would be more, more fearful thinking. Mm-hmm. The non-fueling of fear would be awareness of the body. And there you just have to be patient. And because you're not fueling it with thought, you're not proliferating, you're not making more fearful thoughts, the, that fire of fear begins to die out in your life. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not like you have to eradicate it, because that, that usually doesn't work. But rather you bear with it, you bear with the flames, you bear with the dying of the fire. That takes a lot of patience. So if you can make it conscious... And say, okay, fear, fine. What do you what do you really look like? What do you feel like? Then you're mindful. So we we tend to say welcome the fear, because we're trying to get rid of the fear. Mm-hmm. And that's what the practices of you heard the practices of metta. Yeah, yeah. That's what metta is about. It's not just about my good relationships with other people. It's it's a welcoming relationship to that which I'm trying to get rid of. So it's an attitude which is deeper than just personality. So you can see, so with fear, you don't have goodwill towards fear. You want to get rid of it. But goodwill towards fear, oh, come, then what you're doing, you're putting in consciousness now, when fear comes up, you're putting in love and bearing with it. And the loving part becomes very, very powerful. And the fear becomes less powerful. So you love fear. It sounds it sounds like gobbledygook, but it's that's what you're doing. But it's not like, oh, I love to be afraid. You know, it's, 
I'm so happy to be afraid. It's not. It's not that. It's like it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to be there. But if you see the logic of of thought creating more fear, mm-hmm. that doesn't work. Uh, distraction, never processing it, that doesn't work. You, you begin to see the logic of facing it in a safe environment and then witnessing like purification. So Ajahn Sumedho's horrible image of that is that meditation sometimes is like an emotional enema. You know what an enema is? It's when you're fasting and you pump water in your stomach to get rid of... That's an enema. So, <laughs> sometimes stuff just comes out of your consciousness, which is not pretty. But you say, oh, this is what not pretty feels like. And so you have, you have courage around the fear. It, it, it can be quite, quite challenging. But once you see, you have right understanding, it, to me it's the only way it makes sense around it. If I'm trying to, like, if I get into analysis, why do I feel so much fear and what happened to me in my life? Or was it maybe because I was a refugee? Or maybe because I'm a second brother? Or that's just thought. But it's not really fear. And quite often that thinking is a escape from the fear. You want, one doesn't want to feel it. So get to know all the flavors. Vanilla, chocolate, <laughs> strawberry, a fear. I've had, I've had a lot of fear in my life. So really, it's been one of my big teachers. I've learned so much from it. I tell people I used to be afraid of answering the phone. As a kid, I'd run away. <laughs> so it's been very important to understand it. <laughs>